0: I don't know what I'm gonna do with this. They said I can't have the special mic today. They said, We'll teach you to wear your white tennis shoes every week and get up here and scream. I'm gonna be on my best behavior today, though, don't worry. Well, good morning. I said I was gonna be on my best behavior, but since it's a little quiet in here, it feels a little sleepy in here. Now you're gonna force me to act up. So get ready, here we go. All right, please join me in a quick prayer and then we're gonna dive right on in. Woo. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king and let every heart prepare him room. God, that is what we want today. We want hearts that have been prepared to make room for the coming of the one and only Jesus Christ, our savior and king. Have your way, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. You like that? You like how I turned the song into a prayer? Amen. All right. What I'm about to say is no longer breaking news, but I'm still thinking about it. I want other people to still be thinking about it. So here we go. You might have recently seen that the New York City mayor's office posted a new job opportunity. Mayor Adams is looking for a person who can develop strategies and manage projects for New York City's residents, Uh, but the residents that I'm referring to are not the people, rather I'm referring to the rats. Uh, The position is called the Director of Rodent Mitigation, better known as the rat czar. Now New York City, it turns out, needs a rat czar because this is true. Did you know we are the second rattiest city in America? We come in second place only behind Chicago, which has come in first place for the last eight years in a row. The rat czar, the applicant rather, must be willing and highly motivated and able to implement creative solutions, He or she will be paid quite handsomely, well over six figures, and have an opportunity to work with some of the highest offices in government. And I'm going to be honest with you, at this point, reading through it, I was like, you know what, maybe I'll apply, who knows? That is until I read what the number one qualification needed is. The number one thing that they're looking for is someone who is willing to engage in, and I quote, hands-on elimination. (laughs) And y'all, I changed that word. I didn't know how you were gonna react. It wasn't elimination, it was slaughter. Hands-on slaughter is what the job description actually said. And it was at this point that I realized I am not the person for the job. And it turns out I'm not alone. Lots of people felt this way. Lots of people were interested in this job. They, they liked the idea of the money. They liked the prestige. But when they found out they'd have to do part of it hands-on, they dropped out. And the city has acknowledged it's not going to be easy to fill the position for this very reason. They're clearly looking for a special type of person to do this job. Someone who is willing and able, and qualified. Now, why am I telling you this? Because it's actually what we're talking about today. We're talking about willing, able, and qualified. We're wrapping up our Advent series where the final theme is love, and we are studying the final chapter of Ruth. 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 As I mentioned in week one, one of two women, only two women in the entire Bible that have books named after them. But Ruth is the only non-Jewish person who has a book named after them. Nehemiah, Zechariah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, name them all. She's different. And there's a powerful conversion story happening in this book. Now. The final chapter of Ruth might look simple on the outside, but it's very dramatic. Because in chapter four, we continue to see a man named Boaz fall in love, but beyond that, we see Boaz is willing to do a job that no one else wants to do. He is willing, able, and qualified to step in and redeem Ruth, a foreigner. And Boaz is pointing all of us to something much greater than his own story. He is ultimately pointing each of us to Jesus. Four weeks ago, we started this book and we read about a man who moved his wife and his two sons from their hometown of Bethlehem to a place called Moab. The family was there for 10 years. Unfortunately, while they were there, the man and the two sons died, leaving a woman named Naomi with two daughters-in-law, and they were on their own. Naomi decided to pack it up, head back to Bethlehem, and as she made the decision, Ruth was the only one that chose to go back with her and stick it out with her. When they got back, the only option for them to provide for themselves was for Ruth to go out into the fields and glean, that is to say, to go behind others and pick up the leftovers. Now, Ruth happened to find herself in the field of Boaz. Boaz was a godly man. He was also eligible to be their redeemer, or what we call a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer was someone in your family who was obligated to step in and step up if you found yourself in trouble the way that Naomi and Ruth did. Boaz and Ruth meet. They admire one another, and eventually Naomi and Ruth decide that they are going to ask Boaz to be Ruth's redeemer and marry her. And one night after working, Ruth waits until Boaz is sleeping and then she quietly surrenders herself and she lays down at his feet, hoping that he will say yes to the idea of redeeming her. And as Phil said in last week's message, when Boaz wakes up, his response is loving, gracious, generous. And that is the same response that we receive when we come to Jesus. Boaz tells Ruth that before he can marry her, he has to offer the opportunity to another kinsman redeemer, someone else whose right to claim Ruth would actually come before Boaz. So Boaz says, let me talk to this guy, see what's up. Ruth says, okay, please let me know. And that brings us to chapter four, where we are today, where we get to see the conclusion to how this somewhat unusual story turns out. Now, over the last few weeks, we have explored how Ruth didn't just happen to find herself in Boaz's field, but rather that this was all a part of God's providential plan. Providence, meaning that God is able to take all things and work them for his plan his purpose, your ultimate good. And we need to be reminded of providence and of God's love for us. Because just like we see with Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, life does not go in a straight line. We want it to. I want it to. I'm trying to get from here to there, boom, straight to my goals as quickly as possible. I don't really care for interference. I imagine you're the same way. But guess what, babe? In this life, you're going to have to zig and zag. You're going to have to dip and move. And as we're on that journey, it would help us to be reminded of providence and to believe deep in our hearts that the journey God is taking us on is producing something so much greater In the end. So now in chapter four, we finally hear at the end, Boaz wants to marry Ruth. So he heads to the city gates. That's where they get down. That's where you go and you handle legal matters. He gets a group, a gang. He says, Hey, y'all come and listen to this, okay? We have some business to take care of today. And he also invites the guy, the close relative, who is before him in the line to redeem this family. Let's pause for a moment and just quickly talk about why all of this redemption and you have to marry so-and-so, why all of that's happening? Because I think sometimes when we read stories like this, sometimes it can push a couple of buttons. And just in case I'm like pushing your patriarchy button and you're like, patriarchy, patriarchy. You know, like, you know, it just like, oh, it does something to you. Just in case, let's just clear all of that up. Um, Land was very important, and it's still important, but especially back then. It would help us to remember that Jewish culture, Jewish society, we have it broken up into tribes, and then you have smaller clans, and then you have families. And every family has been appointed a plot of land, and every plot of land has a title deed that goes with it that proves you are the owner. And in the event that someone died, or someone was in financial hardship and needed to sell their land, a kinsman redeemer would be given the chance to buy it first. Why? So that the land stays in the family. And it wasn't just about land either. There was actually something called the Leveret Law. There was a law in place that also said that if someone died, they wanted to make sure the name of the dead lived on. And so a male kinsman, a male kinsman redeemer might have to step in, buy land, and carry on the line for his brother or his cousin by having children with their widow. And this, again, gave families a greater chance at succeeding for many generations to come and protecting their livelihood. Quick note about this. True story. I used to work with a girl whose family owned Walmart. She was very nice. She used to let me come over and watch Kelly and Ryan, and she'd buy bagels. It was great. Uh, Her name's Kelly, by the way. I won't say her last name. Anyway, her family owned Walmart. And let me tell you something about them very close-knit family. You know why? Because they understand better than anybody else that if they don't work together and pass on what they have to the other family members, outsiders would be happy to come in and take Walmart off their hands. Very close-knit family. And that's what we're seeing here, you know, I hope that helps when we bring it into like modern times and you think about these big companies that you would never wanna lose. You would always want that to go to your children. Okay, great, so there we go. Back to the kinsman redeemer. He has to be three things, just three. Number one, he has to be willing. It cannot be a forced sale. He has to want to purchase what he's getting. Number two, he's got to be able. You got to be able, bro. You got to have the money. If you don't have the money, no sale. And number three, he has to be qualified. That is to say, he has to be related to the seller. That's the most important Qualification of all. He has to be a relative. So Boaz explains to the close relative that Naomi, her land is going up for sale. There's an opportunity for him to buy it. Boaz says, Look, if you want it, take it. But if you don't want it, let me know, because I'll take it. The man says, This is a great opportunity. Yeah, I'll take it. And Boaz says, Oh, one catch. If you take that, you also have to take Ruth, the widow. And what's being implied here is that he would also have to have children with Ruth as well. And the man says, then never mind. He says, this is going to mess up my inheritance. I already have a wife and kids. If I take on Ruth and I have children with her, that's going to mess up what's going on you know, with my original nuclear family. And so Boaz says, okay, y'all heard it here first. He doesn't want it, I'll take it, deal. And everybody like trades sandals and goes home. (laughs) Now again, all of this is a picture for our relationship with Jesus. This story, this book keeps getting shoved in a corner It keeps getting treated like some silly love story. It's about so much more than matchmaking and marriages. But I do think there are a couple of important lessons on dating and marriage in it. And because I know that that is on the hearts of so many people, both dating and marriage, both sides of the coin, I wanna just touch on that for just a moment. The close relative chooses not to redeem Ruth because, I'm going to put this bluntly, he thinks she comes with too much baggage. That's a lot of baggage. Marrying her comes with a lot of responsibilities that he does not want. But little does he know, oh God, I'm about to get excited. Little does he know that she carries such a blessing in her womb, a blessing that is going to lead to Jesus. And why am I saying this to you? Because sometimes when we're single, whether you're a man, a woman, you've been married, you're divorced, you have kids, you don't have kids, it doesn't matter. Sometimes on your way to find a mate, you're gonna come across people that make you feel It's not true. They make you feel like you have too much baggage. When that happens, you say thank you so much for dinner. You excuse yourself and you get up and you remember I told you this. You go where you're celebrated, not tolerated. You don't settle. Go back to this book if you have to. You go where you're celebrated, not tolerated, okay? Another lesson I see here. Dating and marriage is not easy, but it's always made better and easier when it's done in community like we see it here. When you're dating and when you're married especially, You wanna be in community with other people so that you have people to affirm you, to affirm you as a person, a whole person, with or without a spouse, but then if you're married, to affirm what God is doing, why he brought you together, his whole plan and purpose for marriage. And you see that with Naomi and Ruth. She's always affirming her, always affirming her gifts, always encouraging her. No, hey, we can find a husband. We can get out there. And dating is so much easier when it's done with a longer-term plan in mind, not just what's gonna satisfy for right now, but what is the best choice that's gonna impact the generations to come. And Boaz understood the long-term implications. And ultimately, the union of Boaz and Ruth, it leads to Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of King David, And from King David, according to the book of Matthew, 28 generations later, we get Jesus Christ. Speaking of marriages, I recently, oh, y'all, excuse me. I really thought I could hit those high notes in Noel. Hold on. (laughs) Only Esther can do that. I don't know why I thought I could get up there with her. Okay, let's rock. Speaking of marriages, um, a couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of getting together with a couple of other uh, married couples from this church. And we were all getting to know one another, so we were playing like an icebreaker game, and we were answering um, icebreaker questions. And one of the questions was, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? (laughs) And... In case anybody doesn't know, 1989, Die Hard, Bruce Willis at its finest. I mean, it's just, it's a banger. And so they said, well, is, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And so my husband, Brandon, we both raised our hands and we say, yeah, absolutely, it's a Christmas movie. And so somebody said, well, why? You know, why is it a Christmas movie? And I went into this long thing about how, like, well, they play it over and over again on TNT, and, you know, it takes place on Christmas, which it does. It it starts on Christmas Eve, and, you know, it's about a cop who wants to see his wife and his kids, and so he meets them at this party, this Christmas Eve party, and then all of a sudden, these bad guys take over, and suddenly he's got to, like, crawl through air ducts and fight everybody, you know? And so when I finished, Charlie, who was leading the discussion, she said, you know, I think, I think it is a Christmas movie because if you think about it, in every great Christmas movie, Christmas has to be saved. And I thought to myself, my God, she's a genius. <laughs> I've never thought about this before. And I could not stop thinking about it. And I started checking to see if it was true. Home Alone, It's a Wonderful Life, Elf, The Grinch, White Christmas, it doesn't matter. In every great Christmas movie, Christmas has to be saved. And as I was studying for this message, I realized this is the moment. This is the moment right here, at this moment in Christianity, when Christmas is saved. Now, it doesn't happen the way that you and I might have written it. You know, there's no bomb, there's no big fight scene, but through a steady unfolding of events, Boaz saves Christmas. First, he does it by honoring God and honoring God's law. He doesn't take a shortcut. He's just obedient to what God is asking him to do. He agrees to take care of a widow and her family. And then he marries Ruth. And as I mentioned, Boaz and Ruth become the great-grandparents of King David, and King David will lead us to King Jesus. It's so big. Would it have happened any other way? And there's some honor and some praise that we should give to Boaz for what he did, but we tend to skip over this book and we tend to skip over his story because let's be honest, it's not very exciting. It's really modest. It's, dare I say, underwhelming. But that, too, is what makes Boaz such a fitting picture for Jesus. Many times, but especially during the holidays, we tend to think of the coming of Christ. We tend to remember Jesus' life and everything he did with it. We only remember the good parts. But when Jesus was actually here walking the earth... Almost everybody that met Jesus was underwhelmed and disappointed in him as Messiah. Jesus was humble. They didn't want that. They wanted someone who was big and important and who would do big and important things in the government. But Jesus was not that. He wanted to minister to people on a small scale. He wanted to plant mustard seeds of faith. I read this quote, it says, almost everyone who met Jesus thought he was too lowly, too different, too welcoming, except the people that needed him the most, the hungry, the poor, and the outcast. For them, he was just right. He was just what they had been looking for all along, and so they pushed through crowds just to get a glimpse of his glory, to touch his robe, to hear his words. For other people, Boaz might have seemed too simple, too meek, too gentle, too mild, but for Ruth, he was exactly what she needed. To Ruth, he stood out in a way that nobody else did because he moved toward a poor, hungry outcast. Someone that could not do anything for him. And more than 2,000 years later, Jesus is still dazzling us with his brilliance because he stands out for the same reasons. As it says in Matthew 28, he is gentle and lowly. His yoke is easy, his burden is light, and what does he offer us, poor, hungry outcasts, but rest? They say that studying Boaz is one of the clearest pictures that you can get of Jesus in the Bible. You know, think about it, you have Boaz, You have a Jewish man who takes a Gentile foreigner and redeems her. And the only thing she has to offer is her faith. That's Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And then you have Jesus who takes us, Gentile foreigners, and he redeems us through our faith. That's our kinsman redeemer. And Jesus is the only one for the job, the only one who can do it. Why? because he's willing and able. No one forced Jesus to come along and dwell with us. Nobody forced him to do anything at all at any point. What did he say at the end of his life? John 10:18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. He's never forced. He wants to be with us. He wants to sacrifice for us. He's willing and he's able. Boaz used money to redeem Ruth. Jesus used something far more precious. He used his own blood, gave his own life. But if you recall what I told you at the beginning of this message, there are three requirements to be kinsman redeemer. Have you ever asked yourself why Jesus came as a baby? Like really just set the story aside, the songs aside that you've been hearing since childhood and just ask, why did he come as a baby? The the glory of God, the spirit of God could have come as anything. He could have come as a whale. He could have come as a tree. If I had been in charge, if I had been on the planning committee, I would have given him feathers and wings and glitter you know, you wouldn't have been able to tell, is it the Messiah or is it a costume party, you know? I would have jazzed it up a little bit. But when God made the earth and man and then man messed everything up and then God had to send himself, his spirit, his glory, incarnation has to come down to be with us. He comes as a baby. He comes as a baby in order to complete the most important requirement of all to be qualified, the kinsman redeemer has to be your relative. He has to be related to you. And so the word was made flesh like us so that he is not just our creator, he is our true kinsman. He lies in the manger as a baby because he's your brother. That's your brother that you look upon. Desiring God, one of my favorite ministries says Jesus is the ever exalted and superior, the unique the divine older brother in God's family, a family to which we now belong. And because we're brothers with him, we're also heirs and we stand to gain everything that God is ready to give us. Jesus is hope and peace and joy and love. He's savior and king. And he is our brother. And when we reflect on that truth, it adds weight and wonder to Christmas. And that's what we're celebrating next Sunday. We're celebrating Jesus who was willing, able, and qualified to be our kinsman redeemer because he was born unto us. My time is up. I just want to say that this week, for real, I really hope that you will spend time reflecting on that as Christmas draws nearer, and I hope that you remember that when God seems far away, he is so close to us, he always moves toward his people, and finally, that you would embrace everything there is to love about Jesus, your brother, the one who offers you constant hope, unshakable peace, everlasting joy and the deepest love known to mankind let's pray jesus you are so much more than we could ever comprehend but we 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 want to try we We want to know you, we we set our hearts to receive you. I believe you answered that prayer at the beginning. I believe that you prepared our hearts to receive you. I ask that you plant the seed within every person's heart that's in this room or listening to the podcast or on YouTube. Even if it's years and years after this message is given, would you plant the seed that we need in our hearts for what is to come and give us a special blessing for the new year too. We love you, Jesus. Amen.